Hey, this is Chris. Before we get to the show, let me tell you a little bit about Anchor. Anchor is our way of we record podcasts. Fantastic. Let me tell you why. It's easy. It's free. There are creation tools that we can record and edit your podcast right from your phone and your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on such um, providers as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need in a podcast and so much more. Check out Anchor, and you can find it all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Anchor, it's a fantastic way of creating your first podcast and making it work. Hi guys, welcome to our midweek devotion, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 today, and thank you so much for tuning in for uh, our devotion for this week. So as we begin, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. We pray that you'd open our hearts to your word, and by your Holy Spirit, speak to us, and show us how you'd have us to apply what you speak to our hearts to today. Lord, thank you. We praise you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Where it says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So a couple things we want to clarify here. Uh, again, we are in Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 13. So, Romans 4 begins with the author, mostly uh, perceived to be Paul, as addressing the fact that Abraham is justified by faith. Okay, so Abraham is justified by faith, not by keeping the law. And so again, this is really dealing with the heart of the gospel, specifically in terms of the Gentiles. And building the case for the fact that it doesn't matter if you have kept the law, that's not what makes you a child of God. And part of the argument here early on is Abraham, and saying that Abraham's covenant with God had nothing to do with the law. Now, how can we say that? Well, first of all, because Abraham lived before the law was given to Moses. Okay, Abraham is in Genesis, the law comes in Exodus. So Abraham's covenant with God is not based on keeping the law because Abraham didn't have the law. In fact, when God initiates a covenant with Abraham, we're not told anything about Abraham except for who his father was. Uh, God simply appears to him in Genesis chapter 12 and begins a covenant. So there's nothing that we know about Abraham, either good or bad, that warranted him being in a covenant relationship with God. So Again, coming back to verse 13, that the promise to Abraham and his offspring, uh, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So it's about faith in God, Abraham's faith in God. Now in the new covenant, our faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, <clears throat> faith is null and the promise is void. So again, why is... The promise of God null and void if it's based on keeping the law, because none of us keep the law. Uh, Abraham didn't keep the law. I mean, there was no law, but Abraham wasn't perfect. We know that. 
Um, we know that Moses didn't keep the law. Moses wasn't perfect. Uh, no one has been perfect other than Jesus Christ. And so if our receiving this covenant promise of God to be in covenant relationship with God, if this hinges on keeping the law or some kind of religious observation, faith is of no value uh, it requires none. Uh, it would just come down to, can you keep the law or not keep the law? And none of us can. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no such thing as sin. Okay? It simply means that you can't transgress a law that you don't know is there or that is not there. Uh, again, there's different words at play for sin, and one of them is to transgress, to step over the line. Uh, if you think in terms of sports, uh, if you think football, there are sidelines. Uh, if you step over the line, you are out of bounds. In baseball, there are foul lines. If the ball goes to the wrong side of the foul line, it's out of play. That's transgress. It's stepping over the line, and the law simply spells out the lines. To say, if you step over this line, you are out of bounds. You are out of play. Uh, you have broken the law. Now, it do, again, it doesn't mean that there's no sin. Uh, sin is still a factor. Falling short of the glory of God is still a factor. But you can't break a law that's not there. Okay, So that's the point of verse 15. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offsprings not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Again, it's not the lineage, the physical lineage of Abraham that matters here. It's the spiritual lineage of Abraham. It's the faith of Abraham, uh, the faith in God, and now the faith in Jesus Christ that matters in terms of covenant. Uh, why is there no guarantee? Uh, why is there no guarantee of the promise if you depend on the law? Well, it comes down to what I think many people deal with in our culture today, thinking that getting to heaven or having a right relationship with God means that you keep the scales tipped towards doing more good than more bad. And if you do that, you can hope, but you can never really be sure because, I mean, are you really aware of everything on both sides of the scales? And so there's no guarantee of a promise from God. There's no guarantee of a right relationship with God if it's based on obedience to a law, because we don't know. Uh, we don't know. Uh, we don't even know the ways that we break the law. Uh, if being in right relationship with God means that you keep the scales balanced, your life is continually in this wrestling match of, am I doing enough? Am I working hard enough? Am I doing enough good things? And you can never ultimately be certain. But if it, it's based on faith, if it's based in faith in God, if it's based on faith in Jesus alone, you can know because having a right relationship with God no longer depends on what I do or fail to do. It now depends on Jesus, who he is and what he has done. So verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, I want to dissect a couple of things here, because at first read, you say, well, wait, something doesn't quite sound right. Because it says here that Abraham didn't waver in his faith. But isn't he the one who decided with Sarah that God wasn't going to come through, and so they had to take matters into their own hands and use the the handmaiden Hagar to bring about that heir that God promised? While that was wrong, while that was sinful of Abraham and Sarah to do, it wasn't a reflection of their faith. It was a reflection of how they thought the promise was going to be fulfilled. They still believed that God was going to provide that heir, but they figured, well, we have to approach this logically. You know, Abraham's almost 100 years old, and couple that with the fact that Sarah was barren, so we have to come up with creative options. They still believed that God was going to give them an heir, and that's why they brought Hagar into the equation. Now, again, this isn't justifying what they did with Hagar. Okay, that is that was a mess, that was wrong. But they still acted out of, okay, God's going to come through, just not the way that we thought. Okay, he was going to. Uh, they just need to be patient. So they still kept faith. They executed it in a very wrong and destructive way. But they ultimately still had faith that God was going to fulfill the promise uh, just through Hagar instead of Sarah. Uh, when God wanted to do the absolute impossible, and that is take a 100-year-old man and his barren 90-year-old wife and give them a child. Uh, they they underestimated what God was able to do. Uh, we will say that. But then in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So a couple things in here. Being very deliberate to point out that the promise of God to Abraham was contingent on faith. Uh, and it was Abraham's faith that was credited to him as righteousness. Again, it wasn't his works that credited it to him as righteousness. It was about his faith. Okay, Our relationship with God, our covenant with God, is by faith in Jesus Christ, not in what we do or what we fail to do. It's all about Jesus. And so he makes this point here, verse 25, that Jesus, who was raised from the dead, was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. So two points being made here. First of all, that Jesus was delivered up, Jesus was crucified for our trespasses, that he died on the cross for our sins. He took our punishment upon himself. But a lot of times we get so cross-focused, and I'm not trying to uh, discount the significance of the cross, but we need to be careful that we don't disconnect the cross from the empty tomb. Because both of them are absolutely necessary. And again, there's this beautiful imagery back to the temple, back to the Holy of Holies, that 
when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to make the sacrifice for sin, if you look at scripture, he ties this cord around his waist. And what would happen is he'd go into the Holy of Holies, and if God accepted the sacrifice for sin, the high priest would come out of the Holy of Holies. And in coming out of the Holy of Holies, the people could celebrate and say, God has accepted the sacrifice for our sins. But if the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and God is not pleased with the sacrifice and God does not accept the sacrifice for sin, the high priest would be struck dead. And so not only do you have this rope tied around the waist of the high priest, but you also see he's got these little bells on his garment. And so he could have the people outside the Holy of Holies, they're listening. As long as the bells are ringing, everything's okay. But if the bells stop, they could give a little tug on the rope to make sure that he was alive. You know, if they tug on it and they hear the bells and he pulls back, okay, everything's okay. But if the bells go silent and they tug and there's no response, he's dead. Uh, God didn't receive the sacrifice. Now, there's no accounting of a high priest ever having to be pulled out. Okay, but we have this continual reminder that the priest going into the Holy of Holies was putting his life on the line, that he may not come out alive if God did not accept the sacrifice. Now, God always did. But why is this important to Jesus? We can probably already begin to see the imagery lining up. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He became our sin offering on the cross. But... If he goes in the tomb and stays there, is God pleased with the sacrifice? Does God accept that sacrifice on behalf of our sins? But in Jesus coming out of the tomb, it's like the high priest coming out of the Holy of Holies, and so therefore he's raised for our justification. When the high priest comes out of the temple, it pronounces the justification of the people that they've been declared not guilty in the sight of God, that they've been pronounced forgiven, that they've been pronounced in right standing with God. And so as Jesus comes out of the tomb, it's for our justification that we can know that God accepted the sacrifice for our sins, that we can know that we now have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So this entire passage here, talking about the fact that we are justified, we are made right with God, we are heirs of the promise of God by faith, not by works. And he uses Abraham throughout this chapter as an illustration of that point. And now Romans 5 is going to go into the fact that we now have peace with God uh, because of that faith we have in Jesus Christ. And so all of this working together, uh, Romans really this elaborate commentary on the gospel. So I want us to be reminded, what's the takeaway for us? I want us to be reminded this morning that our relationship with God, our right standing with God, has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our checking off all the boxes. It has nothing to do with us doing everything we're supposed to do. Now, should we? Yeah, we're going to come back to that in a minute. But my relationship with God is restored because of my faith in Jesus and what he did for me, not myself. I didn't work myself back into a right standing with God. None of us can. It's only through Jesus Christ. Now, what role do works have, though? And James is going to go on to talk about this a lot, that there must be works. Okay. Now, the works don't save us, 
but the works are fruit of our salvation. If you love your spouse, you do things for them. Uh, if you didn't, that would say something about your relationship. And so, again, there, there's, I know we talked about this in a video last week, that there's often a lot of talk about people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but their actions don't align with that. And what do we do with that? And, and again, their salvation is based on Jesus alone, not what they do or fail to do. But I can say there's a relationship problem. So there's a relationship problem if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, but there's no accompanying fruit in your life in terms of your actions. But there's also a problem in your relationship with God if you think that it all rides on your ability to live up to a certain standard. You're not walking in the grace of God. You're not realizing that it's all him because you've made the focus about you and your performance. And my prayer is that we be set free from that performance trap because I've never encountered a Jesus follower who was filled with a vibrancy and passion when their relationship with God was completely connected to their ability to perform. That's what creates legalism. Uh, that's what creates uh, judgmentalism, because not only am I scrutinizing my own salvation, I'm scrutinizing yours too. Our salvation is all about Jesus, beginning, middle, and end. And so often, and this is part of what Paul writes to the Galatians, that they start in faith, but then they live out their salvation as though it depended on works. Uh, our salvation, our relationship with God doesn't hinge on works to begin, and it doesn't base itself on works to sustain us, and it doesn't base on works to complete us. It's all Jesus from beginning to end, faith in him, in him alone. So thanks for tuning in. I uh, pray this was a helpful encouragement to you to keep your focus on Jesus and not make your relationship with God riding on what you do or fail to do. So thanks again for watching. Lord willing, we'll catch you back here uh, next week for our next midweek devotion. Until then, God bless you.